0: Welcome to the Midtown Podcast, and this is going to be our final episode of this Q&A series, and this is going to be a bit of a grab bag of all the other questions that were asked, so if you're curious about what questions we're going to ask, you can always go to the show notes, look at the timestamps, find which ones you're interested in. Hey,
1: Jake, that's that's really helpful. Thank you. Thank you for doing that.
0: Who's that stranger? That's none other (laughs) than Pastor John Ludovina. Hey, John. Hey. How are we? Glad to be back.
1: Glad to uh, keep answering questions. Try to be make this series that hits so many foundational, big theoretical, biblical concepts. Try to answer as many practical questions as we can. No, it's, you know, we're hitting right in that that sweet spot of cultural engagement where there's a lot of fire and a lot of discontentment and disagreement. And we get to step in there and try to faithfully show this is what it looks like to. Submit to God's design and the truth of his established order, but also walk by his love for people who don't agree with us. And uh, it's not easy, but we want to walk as faithful as we can right in the middle of that intersection point.
0: Yeah, I think about whatever we said, was it week seven where we said, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So we need to be really sharp on this. I think it was. Especially in our time and place. Yeah, I think it was. All right, question number one. How do you handle if your child expresses gender identity issues, same-sex attraction, etc. So John, with your previous experience as family discipleship, I would love to get your perspective. I'm sure you have a whole wealth of pastoral wisdom on this. I don't
1: know if I'd say wealth, but I certainly, if for, for parents who have no experience, I have more than that. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think of a couple things it's, it's in some ways with parents, I hope that everything we taught in this series about how to approach people, how to love our neighbors, how to walk in agape, how to handle these things, I hope those are really helpful. I hope if if your kid's dealing with this stuff, I hope these sermons could be a resource that you might listen to together with your kid and ask them what they think and talk about it. But depending on how old your kid is, that may or may not be the most helpful tool. So I think there's different ways you could use these resources, these podcasts. Uh, You could just listen to them and pray through them for yourself to make your own strategy and how you approach your kid. Or you could listen to them together and use that as a a conversation starter and a launchpad. And one of my favorite things to do in marriage and with my kids is like listen to something where either of us can just pause it at any point in time and say, hey, what'd you think about that? Hey, I have a question about that thing. So that can be potentially helpful. Um, Specifically... Each kid is different. Each family is different. Each parent is different. And so if a kid, or the specific ones I mentioned, if a kid is dealing with gender identity issues, I'll, I'll answer it this way. If I get called in, if someone comes to me with this question, and I'm, they're asking me to give them pastoral advice and counsel, I'm going to start with a lot of questions about this kid. And I'm going to start with a lot of questions about these parents and the, their family, the nature of their family. Not like... Um, not accusing questions or, but I want to investigate. I want to know more about the specifics. And so I'm thinking about a specific time, like you said, when I was in charge of our family discipleship and a a family came to me and said, Hey, our, our son is telling us that he thinks maybe he's a girl. And I said, okay, let's talk about that. And as we talked here, were kind of some of the details they dealt with in their marriage. The wife was a little bit more of a stronger dominant personality. The husband was happy to be a little more reserved, a little bit quieter, Um, their family structure in general, like politically, they leaned left. And so I'm not saying that is a good or a bad thing. But for them, as I just asked more questions, they said that, you know, we spend a lot of time exalting all of the good virtues of women and trying to kind of push back on some of the chauvinism and some of the ways that women have been disenfranchised and abused throughout history. And so as we talked more and more, what I just kind of realized was, well, without meaning to, the environment of your home is we exalt and praise and in lots of really good, healthy ways, talk about all the goodness of how God's designed women to be. And we spend almost no time ever talking about the goodness of God's design for males and masculinity. And it was like, well, that certainly wouldn't surprise me then if a kid's just listening to that and absorbing all of that, if at some point he goes, well, I don't know if I want to be a man because everything we say about them in our family is how, kind of how terrible they are. Not, I mean, I'm, I'm overstating the case, but like, yeah. so as I talked to them, I was like, do you see how maybe we just need to shift that a little bit? And they're like, yeah, we, we did see that. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't harsher, but they, they saw what I was talking about. And so I, you know, I said, now the kid, uh, didn't fit. He's a, uh, we already mentioned him. He's a little bit of a Jacob, Uh, character right he's a little bit quieter he's a little bit sensitive he doesn't feel like he matches traditional stereotypical masculine markers and so that's another source for him of these questions of like oh well if I'm different does that mean maybe I'm not a male, and this is one of the things that we mentioned uh, in one of the sermons. You know, we have this, this great quote about like it used to be you would question the stereotype, and now instead of questioning the stereotype, we question the gender. It's like, man, what a whiff! I think that was an Abigail Favali quote, w- I'm not sure. Um, so for, for you know, for this dad and with his son, I said, Hey, are you not a man because in some ways you don't meet certain traditional stereotypical masculine markers? Of course not, you're a wonderful man. You're a a leader in your home, even though you do it in a slightly different way than many men do. You're a wonderful volunteer and leader within our church. I want you talking to your son about your own struggles with stereotypes and how you found in Jesus Whether my version of masculinity matches exactly the stereotypical versions of masculinity presented in movies and presented in culture, that's not actually what's important. What's important is I want my masculinity to look like Jesus as much as possible. And so I I, I really said, let's, let's give it a little time and just try to make a few shifts where don't stop talking about and extolling all the wonderful, beautiful things about God's design for women, but let's try to bring some matching, some balance to that of and god made men beautiful and good and wonderful in all in all kinds of ways and stereotypes are pretty silly aren't they and that's not actually where our masculinity or femininity comes from and over time what they found was those desires just kind of went away Mm -hmm. so uh, the the reason i'm bringing up this story is i want to recommend to parents our culture is saying it's this simple if a kid Consistently feels a desire to be a different gender. That means they are that gender, and your only option is to do gender affirming care and to get them surgeries and to put them on, you know, uh, puberty blockers and all of these things. I think most of the time, and I think statistically most of the time, when you give kids some different options and we deal into some of the root issues in that kid and that what, like every kid deals with insecurity about their identity and their makeup, and part of our job as parents is to give them a lot of affirmation about this is who God has made you to be, not as a rule that you have to submit to, but as a good gift. What a good gift that he's made you and he's wired you like this. And we don't need to reject that design, even if it doesn't look the exact same for you as it looks like for a lot of the other kids around you. And so, you know, more, maybe more just kind of bigger picture, I would say, get some help, get some outside perspective, because you're in your family, you're in the trees, so it can be hard to see the forest, you know? And so sometimes just having someone, hey, tell us what you see. We're giving you permission to speak in. Are there any blind spots that we're not aware of where we could be accidentally fostering any of this? Uh, Sometimes the kid needs a change of environment. Sometimes there are peer or environmental factors where they're feeling pressured in certain ways and you just got to get them away from some of those sources. That's that's not a I don't I don't run towards that quickly as a Christian as a pastor I don't want to encourage our people to go sect themselves off from society and batten down the hatches by and large, but sometimes that is just Mm. required. There are certain kids that it's like, man, they're so impressionable and they, they care about the opinion of their peers so much that if you have them in an environment where all their peers are saying this is the only answer and if your parents don't support you in this, they hate you. And then their parents are supporting them in that and potentially teachers and other authority figures are supporting them in that, you might have to change their environment. That just may not be a winning solution for you and for that kid. But in general we want to like we've already said, we want to get into the why what is god's design and why is that good how did you know not just here's the conclusion and you have to do it uh lots of encouragement what is the kid's insecurity how can we reaffirm their where they're actually what are actually good sources for them to find identity in god's love for them in god's design of them that's a way better place to find your identity than your sexual desires or your gender identity Man, because those things can actually change over time and in seasons. And then, so if, if I was just going to point to one resource, um, there's a really great book called 10 Questions Every Christian Teen Should Ask and Answer. Jake's going to look up the actual title of that book. That's It's a long title and a, a few of the words are off there. I think her name is McLaughlin. Um, and I can't remember her first name right now. It's a great book. She reminds me a lot of kind of a young Tim Keller in some of the ways
0: she approaches the questions she asks and the way she a- answers them. 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Perfect. So, yeah, that's close.
1: that's the one. It'll be in the show notes. It's a great book. I think everyone should read it. I think it's a great book just to think about cultural questions because the questions that our teens are asking and sometimes kids that are a lot younger than teenage are asking, there are a lot of the cultural uh, questions that I don't think even adults in our culture ask and answer very well. And there are a lot of the questions that we tried to really kind of answer throughout the series Embodied,
0: I love that. And even having a foundational relationship with your kids, where you are spending time with them and building trust with them and already having intentional, personal vulnerable conversations that even if those situations do come up and you need to have those conversations that you've already built just so much trust with your kid i think about how right now with some of our older kids we're having to have the talk in yeah. air quotes yeah according to their age appropriateness and we are ending those conversations with we want to have these conversations with you now because when you get older you're going to be hearing other voices outside your mom and dad that you will be led to think they're the authority. And we just want you to know your mom and dad are the authority on this stuff. So we want you to come to us first about any and all of this. So I just think like building up that foundation before you even get
1: there. And those are great reminders too of just like think talks, not talk. Yeah. I I don't, man, (coughs) one huge talk where we handle every issue and question. Oh, bad, bad approach, bad strategy. Mm -hmm. Think talks ongoing as your child grows. I'm not saying it's the thing you talk about all the time, but create a culture of safety, honesty and comfort level. They're allowed to be awkward. You can't afford to be awkward. So you just, just bite the bullet and deal with it. And what we've seen with our kids is over time, they actually do get more comfortable with it. And then, yeah, like you were just saying, there's a weird cultural inversion of the young people are rewriting the world. And they're coming up with all the new rules. And the old people are disconnected, and they don't know what they're talking about, and the young people do. And that is foolishness. It's true in some ways. There are some parts of technology and some parts of culture that are shifting fast and old people don't always keep up with. But I'm telling you, parents, you know so much more about sex than your kids are. I'll give you another example. Had uh, some parents, good friends of mine, love them a lot, and they're child, their daughter, was in a spot where the kids at school had, there was like a faction of we are the ally faction, we're the pro-LGBTQ faction, and their daughter um, st- sent them a couple emails in which she said, this is what I believe now, and I do not want to have any conversation about it, you aren't allowed to ask any questions, uh, at the end, essentially, and so immediately, they walked into a room and were like, cool, let's talk about that email you just sent us. <laughs> you know, because it's like, that's not how we yeah. communicate. And 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 then they were like, do, do you want to talk about sex and what it is? Ew, no, gross. Ugh, yuck. So it's like, so you're caught up in an ideology where you have a thousand opinions about things involving a topic that in general you can't stand the thought of. What are we doing? Mm-hmm. What are we doing? This is... We don't need to let kids try to figure all of this stuff out on their own with their peers. They're not actually well-equipped for it. And so just one last example, and we'll move on from this one. Um, some of you, you may have run into, there are some, some stories. I, I don't know how prevalent they are. I don't know. Some people, you might feel like, oh, those are just battering examples from the right or something. That's not how they strike me. Uh, there are more and more stories coming out these days of detransitioners. So these are people who decided at some level to transition, that they were transgender, that they were born in the wrong body, pursued some amount of medical treatment, some amount of surgery, and after some time decided, huh, that didn't fix it for me. I need to transition back. One of the costs that many of them are realizing is lifelong fertility. And I'll just be real honest when I say I don't think there is an eight-year-old on planet Earth who knows how to accurately calculate the value of their own fertility for life. I don't think that's a hateful statement in any way. They're eight. They're 10. They're 12. Like, they've not gone through childbearing age yet.
0: They've not seen their brain has not fully developed. The brain
1: hasn't developed. (laughs) The they're socially they haven't seen any of their friends had kids. They don't know if they want kids or not. But our society has said they have to make life altering decisions now that could have life altering consequences that they're not close to old enough to fully weigh out and consider. And we've just all a lot of people just gotten on board and said, yep, any other solution is hateful. Oof, I think it's a really dangerous place to land, and I think as as parents, we've got to be we've got to be loving enough to take the hit, culturally, socially, and potentially in our relationship with our kids, to say, hey, I I know more than you do, and I know that bare minimum, until you're an adult, you don't get to make. I'm not going to support you in life-altering decisions that could have terrible consequences that you're not at all prepared to think through the fullness of the answers. So. I don't say that to say, now approach your kids with that harshness. I just want to put some steel in your spine on, you don't need to walk around on eggshells and massive insecurity on this. God's really smart. He knows how he's designed stuff for a reason. Be really loving. Be really engaged with your kids. And stand on truth and stand on the wisdom and experience that you do have. And then study. Read lots of books. Read every resource we give you. Mm-hmm. you uh, if, if your kid's dealing with this stuff, you can't afford To be ignorant in any way you gotta study up you gotta listen to faithful voices who are doing biblical faithfulness faithfulness to god and also really good cultural translation and they know how to speak into the why and they know how to speak with love and charity to people who are dealing with these issues all
0: right let's go ahead get into the second question john are you out of God's will or living in sin if you don't have sex as an older married couple? So Bible says that we should, but if physical I'm... expression of covenant marriage—that's right. That's but right. if I am elderly, what if I have a bad hip? Does that does that exempt me or am I, according to this question, living in sin?
1: Well, here's one of the things I just love about this question is you know I've been around Midtown for 15 plus years now and. For many of those years, I don't think this question would have been asked. I don't know for certain that this question is being asked by someone who is who is what they would describe as an older married couple. It could be just someone asking theoretically about it, but... Um... You know, in premarital, we, we reference a lot and use a book called Intended for Pleasure. Uh, that'll be down in the show notes. It has a chapter specifically on sex in your 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. I really appreciate their perspective. This isn't something, you know, that we can speak from from personal experience. But what I would say is we want to understand the biblical categories and principles, and we want to ask the question, why? So if the why behind this question is, in your marriage, you have built up frustration and bitterness and sin that's dividing your marriage, and so uh, we're just not really interested in sex, and that's been building slowly from when we were, you know, married ten years and twenty years. Yeah, that's that's a major issue we got to deal with. But always, you know, for a young married couple, for an older married couple, there's a category of physical inability uh, to have sex, and so you know, in in premarital and in pastoral counseling, we always recommend. Do what you can do to meet each other's needs, to serve, to love, to not withhold from, because marriage covenant is a self-giving covenant. It's an expression and a reflection of God's self-giving love. So do whatever you can to pursue that with obviously with like healthy medical boundaries in mind and potentially getting doctor's advice, you know, if you if you need that, whatever you've got going on, you know, let someone recover from an injury if that's what they need. And and we we trust faithful, maturing couples who are following Jesus to figure that out as they go.
0: Yeah. So from what I'm hearing from you, God does not have a mental tally of how often married couples should have sex. And if I'm not hitting that quota, then no, of course not.
1: Of course not. And, but there's also like, he doesn't have a, we don't see any evidence of like, at this point, after this number of years your marital obligation to serve each other in all areas, including sexually
0: evaporates. It's like, that's not there either. And so we don't want to make up rules where he hasn't. All right. Next question. Why does our culture elevate desires around sex, gender, or romance above all others? What desires does God want us to elevate above all others?
1: Man, I love this question because this, this question to me says, this is a thinking person, right? So we're, we're saying overtly and, and, And inadvertently or subvertly, and and people are picking up in our culture, like, it's just out of skew. Like, the way people talk about their identity being connected to their sexuality is like, why is that the only thing? Like, very rarely do people go through life like, I desire a specific type of food, and that, in fact, is my identity. And you must honor my pronouns Mm -hmm. now of beef bovine. I mean, that's a stupid joke. But you know what I'm saying? It's like, Mm -hmm. we just don't do that with other things, so why? Why? I think biblically—I mean, this is a question I've thought about a lot. Go back to a Theology of Sex, which was what, 2017, um, week one. We talked about that a good bit. We'll put that in the show notes, That just the, the culture of idolizing sex and why. But at the end of the day, when God created everything on this earth, he made humanity in his image in a unique and transcendent way. And so when you throw off God, when you throw off love for God as ultimate— one of the easiest things to replace him with is with another person and with the human form and with sex with someone, trying to connect with a person as the ultimate transcendent high instead of worshiping God being first and foremost. And so when the person asks what desires does God want us to elevate above all else, what well, Jesus essentially says is when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are actually the highest good, the highest loves, the highest desires that God has created us for and everything else should come second place, deep distant second place to those two.
0: Two books that I would recommend. uh, So historically, why is it that we are in our cultural moment where we are just so seemingly off the rails when I need to find identity and sex gender would recommend the rise and triumph of the modern self by Carl Truman. He kind of goes into a deep historical dive onto here is how we ended up with this. So, uh would recommend that. That's going to be in the show notes. And then he also wrote a shorter version of that book called Strange New World: How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. So there you go.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if that um book specifically is about or connected to Brave New World at all, but I read that back in high school and it was fascinating back then and it still holds up. I reread it a few years ago and just the way that they think about sex. I mean, this, Aldous Huxley wrote that in the teens or 20s, and he just nailed so much of where our culture is with it now, divorcing sex from reproduction. And it's just all these funny things happen slowly but surely, trying to like push it down on kids more and more. And like, oh, yeah, kids, sex is nothing. It's just an appetite. Just explore yeah. it, you know? And it's just like, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. One other quick historical comment since we're on that. um, documentary called Kinsey about Alfred Kinsey um probably referenced in those books I haven't read them uh at least not recently but uh Kinsey is sometimes known as like the father of modern sexuality or um the way we view sex so it's fascinating he's not a great guy you're not going to like the documentary but it does explain a lot of kind of where we are and how we think about this stuff
0: Next one, would we officiate a LGBTQIA plus wedding for the sake of serving them? So this question was brought up either in week six or week seven, because we were... Week seven. Week seven. How do we navigate this as Christians? And we said from stage, well, I think we would try to be hospitable and serve others within our conscience. Yeah. And I think when you hear a pastor say from stage... I would serve people who identify of whatever their sexual orientation, people's minds went to. Well, what about serving them when you're officiating a wedding? Sure. You're saying you would do that. You would serve for the sake of hospitality and all yeah. that. So that's a great question because our minds certainly didn't go there, but we had yeah. a number of people, their minds went in that direction. So that's right. So I actually, I actually preached
1: that one. And I was a little bit surprised I mean, Like the
0: day of, I got a couple emails right away.
1: There's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Did, did you just say this? Yeah, and I was like, no, and then I and at first I was like, that's kind of where's that coming from, and then upon reflection, I was like, oh, I, I see where people got that from, and so specifically, I was answering a question that was sent in with the Q and A, where someone said, if I own a service based company, should I serve a homosexual company, and so I, or a homosexual couple in their wedding, and so I'm thinking about making cake or a cup or cupcakes or doing floral design or invitations photography, and that's photography, and, right, yeah. and that's still an issue of conscience. If, yeah. if you don't have a free conscience to serve in that way, that's fine. That's a fine place to land, I, I think. And I meant to include that within the sermon. But I said, I, I don't think that serving is necessarily affirming. And then that's where people went, well, is he talking about him? Or mm-hmm. is he talking about the person that who asked this question? And I was talking about the person who asked the question. Uh, for, for myself and for all of our Midtown ministers, no. We would not officiate a LGBTQIA+ wedding service because our understanding of officiating is that we are standing as god's representative of this is god's good design and so i do want to mention this here as well that because someone could like hear that and be like i knew it they're hateful i knew it i've been waiting to find the the proof text and it's like i don't think so and here's why not Uh, i've had heterosexual couples ask me to marry them and my answer was no as well Because there was nothing good about the relationship. I mean, I had a a good friend of mine. I was trying to live on mission with him and build with him years and years ago. And he was joining the military and kind of on a whim was like, oh, I'm going to marry this girl that I've been dating for three weeks. And he's like, dude, this is a terrible idea. And I told him that to his face. Like, I mean, we talked, we had a great relationship, you know, and I was like, "I'd, I'd be there for you, but I can't officiate it. I can't put God's stamp on this and say, yes, this is good and holy and right. And, you know, those aren't identical but I do just want people to know like it's not a this is the only category of people, so my general rules are um i'm i'm not gonna I'm not gonna officiate someone's wedding if I don't do premarital with them and then I'm not gonna officiate a wedding if it's not at any level in line with God's
0: design for marriage sure yeah, I think there's two levels to it, so as pastors, when we are officiating a wedding, we are endorsing the biblical Institution of marriage, we're putting our seal on that, and there's a second level for most of us where we are also putting our seal of approval on this particular relationship. And as much as we can know, we think these are generally healthy people
1: moving in the right direction.
0: And I've certainly, I have also been in those positions where a couple wants to do, wants me to officiate, and hey, just in good conscience and good standing. I can't do it because of X, Y, and Z and would encourage you towards repentance before this happens. Yeah. Uh, and that was man, woman, and wanting to do that. And had to say, now, no.
1: and it can get complicated. So, uh, I'm just curious if you had an experience where, um, two non-believers said they wanted to get married and asked you to do it, how'd you respond to that situation?
0: Let's, let's explore that. I think if it was a stranger then I would probably say no. But if this was a friend of mine that perhaps I've been I've known for a long time that I've been building with, yeah. uh, we've had conversations about this, I think it could potentially be a cool witnessing opportunity.
1: And 100%. Premarital can be an awesome time to just unpack the gospel and help someone see their need for it. Yeah. So I want to be there. But the, the fundamental difference there is, Heterosexual couple. So it's at least aligned with God's design for marriage at that level.
0: So that, and then that's, that's why I said like, kind of like the level one of like, yeah. I'm still endorsing what I believe is the biblical institution right. without necessarily like, I would prefer if you were members of our church in good standing. But if I have a good relationship with you, I might, yeah, could at least be willing to consider it. That's right. Yeah. And then, I mean, and I was just telling him, it's like, once again, premarital
1: is, is going to be part of that here's what I believe This is what we're going to be talking about. And I'm going to talk about that in your
0: wedding. Are you sure you want all of that? And Mm -hmm. if they're like,
1: yeah, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm probably going to on board there.
0: Now with people in the service industry. So as pastors, we're thinking through those two levels and from people in the professional service industry, I think it's a little broader that you have to figure out according to your conscience, like you said. So someone could say as a Christian, well, what's the big deal if I do photos for, a gay couple versus a straight couple because, you know, even if it's a straight couple, they could be living together, not married, and we would frown upon that. So what's the difference? And I think it goes back to that level one bit of like, as Christians, we have a biblical ideal for what marriage is. Now, that being said, it's according to your conscience. So like, yes, that is still fundamentally different. Now, whether you choose to shoot the wedding or not, that's ultimately on you, but that is different.
1: And I do think that's where it gets interesting. If I'm the owner of the service industry company, where do I draw the line and why? Right. And, and it,
0: I'm not saying there's
1: no answer to that question. There are. So the, the answer to that question could be, well, at level one, I only photograph weddings that at least by visual appearance could look like God's ideal. Right. That could be where you draw the line you could draw the line and some do and some do sure you could draw the line at i only do photography for happy healthy christian married couples who are pursuing jesus you're limiting your market but you can make you can make whatever decisions you want when it comes to that i would i would just like you to think through well why you're making those decisions and not feel like you necessarily have to be overly restrictive unless it's just you know god's spirit is really clear on your conscience like that's that's the only place i can go
0: next question do you have any thoughts about how to navigate a world in which many evangelical churches and denominations are also rejecting a biblical sexual ethic the united methodist church is the most recent example i can't even assume that the most evangelical american christians believe homosexuality is a sin anymore so yeah what do we do with that where as a church we're promoting a biblical sexual ethic, and yet plenty of churches in our world, in our country, even in our city would say, nah, you're actually wrong, and here's how we interpret the verses that you use to uphold a biblical sexual ethic, and at the end of the day, let's just love one another, you know? How do we we navigate that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a poignant question. I think There's an awareness of what's going on in our culture when someone asks that question. I think for us as church planners and as, as ministers, uh, we've been thinking about questions like this in a variety of topics for a long time. So whether or not a church or denomination holds to a faithful biblical sexual ethic and definition of marriage, a lot have already lost the gospel. They've already lost inerrancy of scripture and authority of scripture. I mean, they, you've lost so many battles before then. So, I don't know where this person's coming from. They could be coming from a, like, do we need to pick a fight and, like, really try to reform? And and it's like, man, that that really depends on what God calls you to. Uh, They could be asking a question. uh, And my guess is the people I meet and interact with the most are the people who are just, the analogy I would use for it is it's like you're like a tree, and there's an avalanche going on around you. And it's like, at what point do my roots give way? Like, everything sliding this direction, how do I stay really rooted in? And in that regard, you know, I mean, I'm even looking at, like, Jesus's letters to the churches and revelations and how many times in revelation two and three, how many times he's going, stand firm, fight till the end, remain in my love, abide in my love, persevere, endure. Um, I've been saying that in teaching team probably for the better part of a year or two now of like, and some of that's just for my own life. I need tons of encouragement about enduring and persevering. And, you know, Jesus never promises us that, from within or from without, we're going to ne- live a nice, easy life. And so uh, the, the main thing I would just tell this person is like, be faithful to what God's called you. Um, let's let's kind of aim most of our fight in the right spots. And so like, I'd rather be fighting for my neighbor to know Jesus than fighting culturally with that church is wrong and doing it wrong. I'm, I'm not afraid to say they are when they are. Um, it's certainly discouraging You know, it's hard to... And and even on this one, we're going to get into a question I think a little bit later on that that hits on this as well. It's not like the only pressure to cave is from the more progressive side of thought and culture. Uh, I think there's a lot of ways that you can cave conservatively. And I think a lot of that is in response to it. It's like, man, these churches don't even believe this anymore. So I need to sect myself off from culture and I need to go get with my little friends friends who we all agree the exact right biblical bestest truest things and we'll be safe there it's like okay i understand the motive to do that but you can't be faithful to god's to jesus's command that he is sending us the way that he was sent into the world but not of it not marked by sin loving the world even though we are not idolatrously connected and joined to the world right and so that's a there's a lot of wisdom required in that, um, you know, trying to be faithful to all of the scripture and trying to be faithful to all of what Jesus has commanded. You're going to end up with enemies and pressure on all sides, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And it's like, yeah, you look at Jesus's life and that's right where he is um, in his death. The Pharisees and the Herodians, the, the people who followed King Herod and the, the, mo- the most self-righteous Jewish ruling class aligned together to kill Jesus. And if you don't understand the historical context of that, it would be like the alt-left and the alt-right picking one guy that they both hated and being like, we got to murder that guy. And it's, it's almost impossible to imagine, but it kind of exposes to me like that political and philosophical polarization that happens is not really Jesus' call. And, I'm, and just so no one's confused, I'm not saying we should be centrist and peaceful on all things. No, I'm saying we should be faithful to Jesus in all things, and that's going to cause you to be really really opposed to certain things on the right and really opposed to certain things on the left. And And, it's not surprising to me when churches don't remain faithful in that,
0: And to oppose in such a way that is still in the ethical framework of Jesus's posture. So you can certainly see the way the church and the world is going and separate yourself. That's one extreme, or you can, just fight doggedly in every theological and political sphere, in this spirit of arrogance and
1: every no and that's no discernment wrong. for what's a mountain or a molehill. Yeah, and that's that's also
0: wrong. That it's foolish, you know. It's yeah.
1: like it's, you you have limited time. Focus on what matters most.
0: Would highly recommend the book by Preston Sprinkle. Does the Bible support same-sex marriage? Twenty-one conversations from a historically Christian view. So he is looking at all of the quote unquote theological arguments against a biblical sexual ethic as strange and as ironic as that sounds. But he's saying, Hey, some people on this side say use this as a biblical basis for why same sex marriage is okay. And let me just show you real quick how that argument doesn't hold up. And he does it for 21 popular examples Um and he does it in a very charitable way that's biblical and faithful and would just highly recommend to you.
1: Yeah. And even, you know, I mean, we're recording this right before Christmas. And I'm just thinking if if you're thinking about, well, my family member is in one of those church denominations. And they're kind of in this both and world of they think they're a believer, they're following Jesus. But they're also kind of trying to bring into their embrace certain worldly definitions and you know, kind of, can we find a middle end there where it's like we can be peaceful to all sides? Man, you just want to prayerfully, lovingly, just like we tried to do in the series, point at the underlying problems with such a move because it can feel very compelling and very loving and very gracious. But it's like, yeah, we, we have to find out how to walk in, in grace and truth at the same time and not give up one for the other. All right, Jake, let me throw this next one to you. Uh, Are people who identify as part of the LGBTQ plus community and are saved Christians still a child of God in his
0: eyes? That's a good question. And I go back to what we said in maybe episode one or two, thinking about what are the theological hills to die on? And let's give ourselves a categories for how to think about certain theological issues so what we said last time and we'll put the link in the show notes from the sermon this was based on but as christians historically we have sort of a ranked system of how we think about things and this even starts in the book of acts but here are issues that we need to die for here are issues we should divide for here are issues that we should debate for here are issues we decide for And I would say categories one and two, die and divide over. Those are close-handed things. Uh, These are things relating to salvation and discipleship. And categories three and four, debate and decide, are more open-handed. These are categories where it's like uh, church practice and programs and stuff where the finer details ultimately aren't that critical in your justification sanctification so when we think about the biblical sexual ethic is that part of the gospel presentation to come to know jesus is you also need to agree to these set of facts about lgbtqia plus whatever uh no because the issue number one the stuff to die for is all the stuff that we would all say this is what you need to know to become a christian jesus is god Died on the cross for your sin, rose from the grave, like stuff that all Christians have agreed to historically for the last 2,000 years. Sexual biblical ethic does not fall into that, but it does fall into category number two, which is stuff that we would divide for. This is stuff that is pretty critical to our discipleship. So if someone says, I do agree to all the stuff about Jesus but I don't agree about this stuff. I would want to ask a lot of questions because I do think it's incredibly critical to your discipleship. So maybe this person just hasn't done an in-depth look into what Jesus has to say about human sexuality. So let's start there. Let's have the conversation. Maybe they just need to be discipled into the way of Jesus like we all do. Um, And so I would say that is, could be a beautiful opportunity to show them like, Uh, you are not your desires, you are not your sexuality. Jesus gives you better desires. Pursue him, pick up your cross, follow him, uh, because there is fuller life to be found in this life and the life to come when we pick up our cross and die to self and do what Jesus says. And if someone says no, even after all of that, then I have some bigger questions of, if you don't want to follow after Jesus, after knowing what Jesus says, what is that? that might actually reveal the state of your soul think about uh you will know them by their fruits and works do not save us but works after we are saved are a good indicator of what's truly going on evidence of
1: the holy spirit's work and
0: the grace of god at work to transform and change our hearts over time yeah and so even the wording of that question people who identify as part of the community and are still saved so the phrase identify as part of that community To me, that comes with a wholesale acceptance of that worldview, to make your identity part of that community, when that community would clearly reject the biblical sexual ethic on grounds of a number of reasons, seems antithetical to the way of Jesus. So while I would not say yes or no one way or another, I would have a whole lot of questions.
1: Uh, all right, Jake, next question. I work for a liberal company who has promoted claiming your pronouns as part of introductions. Recently, there's been a push to add pronouns to email signatures to eliminate confusion, in quotes. Not sure if claiming pronouns or adding it makes that, in quotes, okay.
0: So I go back to our sermons on week seven and week eight on how do we navigate this stuff, especially if in my workplace I feel the pressure to cave in. And I think that is one of those things where – it is, a, it is a Holy Spirit sort of conscience sort of thing. We're not going to give you a rule because the Bible doesn't give a us that. A lot of wisdom issue there, yeah. Yeah, so I think it is one of those instances where we are with Jesus. We're spending time with him daily in community. We want to love neighbor, our neighbor, want Jesus for them. So when it comes to this particular situation, to just weigh it out. And does the Holy Spirit lead one way or another? And for some, that's going to be, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, maybe just saying my pronouns is fine. And maybe that's a form of hospitality to others to show that I'm willing to meet them a certain way. I know of particular. Christian conferences and organizations that do that for that express purpose that they hold to a biblical sexual ethic and still do the pronouns as a way to be missional and hospitable towards that, the LGBTQ community so that they can at least begin a conversation. And I think there's a lot of merit in that. And I completely understand if someone says, I don't feel comfortable with that because the moment I begin using pronouns. I separate biological gender and sex. And that's already like a secular worldview that I am affirming just by that. And it's like, I totally get that. And so I think that just depends on how the Holy spirit leads you. Is that fair?
1: No, I think that's absolutely fair. I think you got some categories here of, you know, uh, all of work will be redeemed in the new heavens and the new earth. And until then, every place of employment every company has some amount of sinful reality that they're addressing potentially and how they're solving a problem uh, that that is in the culture of the workplace there and people have different amounts of abilities tolerance to what they can withstand in the environment that they're in for a large portion of their lives you know 40 plus hours a week you know it's a lot of hours and so you know i think we've got some really beautiful biblical examples you you look at uh daniel uh in the babylonian empire and he works so well within an overtly idolatrous anti-god system that he rises up you know you look at joseph in egypt's affairs in the pharaoh's affairs in egypt it's, deeply polytheistic oh my gosh the pharaoh generally viewed themselves as a god and Joseph is working hand in hand side by side honoring god not bowing to the the wrong idolatrous god dismissive regime that he's a part of that he's working for but being really faithful and because of that with both of those examples they're extreme examples right but god puts them in these crazy he gives them these crazy opportunities to show faithfulness to him. And then God uses that to bless, to serve, to save hundreds and thousands of people. And I just don't want to dismiss all of the patience and all of the work and all of the tough decisions that that had to be made before those opportunities ever came. But that's not saying, so that's what you have to do. I'm just saying there is a category for that. Sometimes God calls his people to work in very uncomfortable environments, to have to play along with certain rules that, they don't prefer, that they don't agree with, to have, sometimes love compels us to jump through some hoops is another way I'd say it, and to take a patient approach. And then there, there also is, you know, so, uh, still in the Babylonian empire, you look at Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you look at Nebuchadnezzar, you have this with Daniel as well, where this moment comes up. Okay. Now here's the rule bow, bow overtly to the golden statue. And they go, no, I can't, ah, can't, I can't do, do that. that. Yeah. Can't do that. There's a lot I can do with a heart that is faithful to God and desires to serve, whether you agree with me or not. There is a point at which I would no longer be breaking man's law or the company policy and rules. I would be so overtly breaking God's law that I, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And so those are, those are the categories I want our people to have wherever you are, whatever God's called you to be as faithful as you can there. To love people really well but to love god most and then you know take it case by case walking community keep people in the loop and if if you get to that breaking point where it's like man I, I can't do this okay let's go find another job you know that'll be there'll be some some turmoil there but that's okay god's worth it yeah
0: Next question, what do we mean when we refer to culture, in quotes? We refer a lot to how our culture is reductive to how it treats body, sex, etc. But isn't that reductive to culture? Aren't we wildly divided in our culture these days?
1: Yeah, so big question. Like I said, I mentioned it earlier, um, so we don't have to camp on it a lot here. One One book that I would recommend is a book called A Practical Guide to Culture, by John Stone Street and Brett Kunkel. I'm pretty sure those are the two authors there. I've recommended that to our parents. through our milestones programs a good bit before. They use this really helpful analogy up front, right in the beginning of the book where they talk about the ocean and that the ocean has waves and it has currents. And so the waves are kind of these single issue items that can, the waves can be powerful, they can knock you over, but the real power of the ocean are the currents the things that pull you in different directions. And so this person's asking some t- especially in this series, I think this person's kind of saying like it sounds a lot like you're you're picking on the left side of culture and the the alt left, the extreme left that's really pushing gender ideology the hardest. And in some ways we are because we're trying to fight for biblical faithfulness, God's design, why that's good, why that's best. Don't miss the parts of the series where we push back on very different ideologies as well. And all of those at some level, some of those are wave issues, and you got to know how to handle the specific issues. Some of those are the undercurrents, right? So generally speaking, on the right, with more conservative politics, philosophy, you're going to find a little more of circle the wagons, batten the hatches, fighting. Sometimes uh, the conservative language of fighting for traditional values can be cover or shroud for self-righteousness and i don't have to deal with anyone who's not as good at life as me Uh uh-oh god's gonna call you to love the younger brother to go to break your fair side sometimes on the left in the language of love and inclusion and acceptance that's a shroud for i don't have to hold faithfully to anything in god's design and i don't have to pick a fight ever and i can just be a peacemaker and even more so what we've seen really recently is that on the left you can, you can be really older brother from the left. And so you can do that on both sides of the aisle. That's all I'm really trying to say. Like, yes, you can absolutely be reductionistic in how you speak about culture. That's not our goal. Uh, when we talk about culture, we are generally talking about the sinful systems of the world, and those can be bent in a lot of different directions. And so from whatever direction it's coming
0: from, we, Jesus wants his people to be separated out from the world. Yeah. I wonder if even underneath this question is what are your sources where you're pulling all of these ideologies from? And I think media tends to be a really good sort of uh, grab bag to see where we are at culturally, like the songs playing on the radio, the popular books that are being sold, the programming we see on TV, yeah. all of these things while not explicitly are all when you zoom out sort of creating some sort of narrative or ideology about what we believe about ourselves the world around us our neighbor and to know that as a church i think if we were teaching a sermon in a different part of the world whether that's in africa or asia or even you know bible belt midwest pending our background there would be a number of things that we would phrase differently because of having our pulse on as much as we can on what our people are consuming and absorbing. Sure. You know? Yeah. So we want to be careful with that. Yeah.
1: And I, I think just even one thing to note here is in your feed, keep a variety of voices. Hear what people are saying from different lenses. and uh, It's actually one of my favorite courses I ever took in college. I took an introduction to the philosophy course on the introduction to ethics. And for every topic, it was dealing with wave issues. And for every topic, we had to read a leading author's article on either side. So the, the, the whole That's textbook good. was phrased as questions. And then we had to read from both. And so many times I didn't agree with either. And I think that's, as Jesus' followers, a lot of times you're not going to agree with either, but you want to be able to see and notice the bits
0: of truth in both and just kind of know where culture is at all around you. Last question for us, John. If you were born to a single parent, does that mean you are the product of sin? And does that make you more sinful and less worth saving? This is a, I would imagine coming from a place of deep, deep pain, hurt, deep insecurity. So How do we talk about that?
1: I mean, it's just like, there's this weird yes and part of it where it's like, if you're born to a single parent, was sin involved in the situation at some level? Yeah. Yeah. Breakdowns happened for sure. Brokenness for sure. For sure. At some level, depending on the exact circumstances. But does that mean you were the product of sin? So this is, I I think at weird theoretical level sometimes, but I think part of us being born (laughs) with a sin nature from our first grandparents is also like every amount of human sexuality has some sin attached to it at some level, some little bit of selfishness, even there. Hmm. Um, so I just don't want you to feel like totally singled out. Like, Oh, well that was really sinful sex that led to my birth. So therefore, because that's the conclusion they're making, right? Does that make you more sinful? Not necessarily. And also we're all born sinful equally. Sin nature doesn't necessarily mean we commit the same amounts of sin or that we harbor the same amounts of sin in our mind and our hearts, but all sinful, all fall short, Uh, less worth saving. Oh man, what a, what a phrase, what a packed phrase that just, um, this is not at all to be like from a a condemning place or a, a looking down on someone place, but like that phrasing to me tells me you're missing a lot of what the scriptures are saying because what the scriptures are saying cover to cover are none of us in a, in, in our own goodness are worth saving. Hmm. None of us have done anything to force God's hand when it comes to loving us to earn his love because we're so awesome. He goes on loving because he's so awesome and he sets the value of our worth first by making us in his image. Second, by sending his son to bleed and die for us. So your worth has been set at the value of Christ's blood, not based on your worthiness at all, but based on his worthiness, not based on your awesomeness, but based on his awesomeness, not because you did good enough, you loved good enough, your parents were good enough, the the sexual parameters and environment that caused your birth were good enough, not based on any of that. You are worthy of Jesus's love because he has given it you're worthy of his love because of him. Mm-hmm. And then you're worthy to stand before a righteous God because your faith is in him. And he now covers you with his righteousness, with his perfect love. So yeah, I mean, just gospel fundamentals. None of us are worth saving in our sinfulness, in our sinful uh, identity in our sinful actions and our sinful inborn nature. None of us are worthy of saving. None of us have earned it. He has done the work for us. And that blows my mind. And I hope, The person who asked this question hears this and and that you just hear God whispering, telling you, yelling at you, like you're loved anyway. You're that's the gospel is you're loved anyway, Mm -hmm. despite all of the circumstances in your family, despite whatever you've done in your life, despite your past, despite your current state, despite what you did last night, whatever it is, you're loved anyway. And there's a way to be washed clean, and there's a way to be redeemed, and there's a way to be set free, and there's a way to find hope and a new family and a sinless identity in Jesus because he gives that away.
0: My mind goes to the book of Luke and how the book of Luke, unlike the other gospels, that author really wants to highlight how Jesus is for everyone, not just the Jew before the Gentile and not just uh, Gentiles who are religious and have it all together. But even those who come from the most broken backgrounds, Jesus goes out of his way towards them to meet them to love them and to save them uh in luke we get the prodigal son story how the father out of his love for the son runs out of his way looks like a fool to reach them and so if that is you would recommend read the book of luke and see how much jesus goes out of his way amidst all the brokenness and pain, to come down to love you. That's that's how loved you are. Yeah, Dr.
1: Timothy Keller's Prodigal God is a great resource to go along with. Luke
0: 15, walking through
1: that story. You know, same chapter, the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go to risk himself to go save the one. You know, it's like you might feel very outcast and different than the other 99 sheep just comes after you. He had great cost to himself. Like, that's the gospel. So we love you guys. Uh, Hope all of these resources have been helpful to you in our Embodied series. Um, Keep praying. Keep chasing after Jesus. He chased after you who went to incredible lengths in the cross and in the resurrection to redeem us, restore us, make us a family with each other. Uh, Appreciate you guys. Love being church family with you. All
0: right. See y'all later, Bye.